Hi, I'm Ann Churchland from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York, and my lab is interested in understanding decision-making. And today, I'm going to tell you about connecting movements and neural activity during decision-making. So we'll start with a definition that you might remember from my previous talk, that for us, a decision is a commitment to one out of a number of alternatives. And mostly in my lab, we study decisions that ultimately lead to action. And there's a few reasons for this. And the first one is simply that many decisions naturally do lead to action. So consider this mouse. It's deciding whether or not to, to uh, rear up and eat these blueberries. And if it decides that that is what it wants to do, that decision will naturally lead to the appropriate motor response or movement response so that the animal can acquire the blueberries. And that's true of many decisions that we make. Sometimes a decision is the same thing as a decision to act. Not true of all decisions, but certainly a big class of decisions that we and animals make. <clears throat> a second reason that we study decision-making this way is that decisions that inform actions are well-suited to animal studies. You might remember in the previous talk that I, I described a few ways that we dis study decision-making behavior in the laboratory, like having uh, monkeys report decisions by making a psychotic eye movement, or by having rats report decisions by moving to choice ports that they uh, poke their snout into to communicate to us what they've decided. And this is really important in animals, and really even in studying human decision-making as well, because it allows us as experimenters to have a systematic and efficient way of knowing what it is that the, the human or animal has decided, and then we can record that and analyze it, connect it to neural activity, and so on. Um, uh, however, there are some challenges to this approach. Uh, and, and one challenge is that when we study decisions that lead to action, if we're doing this while measuring neural activity in the brain, we need to be able to separate out the decision-related activity from the movement-related activity. And this is a problem that's been known for quite some time. And indeed, people in previous decision-making studies have thought about within a particular area and for a particular movement, like an eye movement, what might be the consequences uh, for the brain in terms of the movements that are being planned. But despite this appreciation in the field that movements can mod modulate neural activity during decision-making, there are many open questions about the nature of that neural activity. And the first question is, well, how widespread is it? Is neural activity related to movements? Just a, a few specific areas in the brain, maybe limited to the motor cortex, for example? Or does movement-related activity span many, many neural structures uh, all across the cortex and maybe even subcortical areas as well? The second question is, is this movement-related activity, is it driven only by instructed movements? So instructed movements are things like the saccades that the monkey uses to report a choice or the orienting movement that the rat uses to report a choice. And certainly we would expect that those would drive neural activity. But might there be other movements as well? Could it be the case that animals make many uninstructed movements that we haven't been really thinking about but that have a big impact on neural activity? Well, no one really knows. And finally, is this movement-related activity task-aligned? or task-independent. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We would expect that certain kinds of movements might have to do with specific events in the, in the, in, uh, the task that the animal's doing. For instance, if decisions lead to an animal being rewarded at the end of a trial, we might expect there could be movements that are in anticipation of that reward. One example might be that perhaps the pupils become more dilated at the end of the trial when the animal thinks it's about to get its reward. 
we would call that task aligned because it always happens at the same moment uh, in the task that is right before the reward. But there might be other kinds of movements that matter for neural activity as well. And I'll refer to those as task independent. And those are our spontaneous, uninstructed movements that happen at random times during the trial. And you might want to think of those as kind of more like fidgets, movements that don't have to do with anticipating the reward or seeing the stimulus specifically, that aren't, and they're not really a high priority for the experimenter, but might be a high priority um, for the animal. And we partly wondered about these uh, task-independent movements just because looking at what humans do, even looking at a classroom full of children or looking at people on the subway, they actually make a lot of spontaneous uh, task-independent, seemingly task-independent movements all the time. So these three questions, is the activity widespread, driven by movements, task-aligned or task-independent, we didn't know the answers to these. And so we set out an experimental paradigm that would allow us to answer these questions and understand better how movement-related activity and decision-making, uh, decision-related activity interact at, in the brain. So this work was led by two postdocs in my lab, uh, Simon Musall and also Matt Kaufman, um, who now has his own lab at the University of Chicago. So they came up with the behavioral paradigm to study decision-making in mice. And uh, the mice are presented with an auditory or visual cue, so a flashing light or a series of clicks, and it could be on one side of the mouse or the other side of the mouse. And the mouse's job is just to figure out what side it's on and to make a licking movement to that side to report that that's where the stimulus was located. So I'm going to show you a movie now of what this looks like. And this is a camera that's um, looking up from underneath um, at a mouse. You've probably never looked at a mouse this way before. Um, uh, you can see the mouse's mouth at the top of the frame. Uh, and next to that are two little um, uh, squares. Those are lick spouts. And those later on are going to move in and allow the animal to make a choice. And at the bottom there, you can see two, uh, two circles which are going to move in. Those are little handles. And the animal will grab one or both handles when he's ready to start a trial. This is our way of letting him know when he's ready to initiate a trial. And this is an important component of our research design for a few reasons. So first, you might remember from the previous talk that an animal's internal state has a big effect on neural activity. And our hope is that by allowing the animal to self-initiate a trial, that we can start to control that internal state a little bit better. At least he'll be in a similar state of mind if he's decided himself to initiate a trial, as opposed to being caught off guard. A second reason we have animals initiate trials is that we want them to be in charge of how long the session lasts. It gives us a really nice behavioral readout of their overall amount of engagement and overall comfort if they are the ones that are initiating, uh, initiating each trial. So I'll play the movie now, and you'll see uh, the animal um, quite engaged and uh, grab the two little handles. So they move in, and you can see that he makes contact with them. So after that, it's time for the animal to see a stimulus. So now this is again a movie of the same mouse, but this time it's taken from the opposite point of view. It's a camera that's behind the mouse, and you can see its nice long tail there at the bottom of the frame. So there's going to be a visual stimulus that will appear on the right, and the animal can see this just the way that you can. There it is. Then the animal has to wait a whole second, which is a pretty long time for a mouse to wait, but uh, they're, they're at least moderately patient. And then after that, the two lick spouts at the top are going to move in, and then the animal has the opportunity to report its choice. So here he goes. He made a, report, a choice to one spout, and the other spout moved away. We do that so that the animal can't change its mind. Mice, like humans, sometimes like to decide and then go back and change their mind. So once they've committed, the other option is, uh, is off the table. 
So this is what it looks like um, for, for mice. And we set up these video cameras maybe for a few reasons. But as you'll see in a moment, having this high-resolution video of what the animal's doing at every moment in time turned out to be absolutely critical to interpreting the neural activity that we measured. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So I need to tell you an important component of our experimental design, which is that all animals did both auditory and visual trials, but there were two groups of animals. One of them we call the vision experts, and that means they have a lot of experience with the visual stimulus, that's those flashing lights that you saw a moment ago, and very little experience with the auditory stimulus. And these animals are indicated by the blue lines that you see there. On the vertical axis, that's the percentage of time that they make a correct response. And you can see that for the blue line, when they're given a visual stimulus, uh, that they uh, are, are, have high accuracy, usually above 80% accuracy. But when they're given an auditory stimulus, their performance is at chance. That's the value corresponding to 0.5 that's right on the white dotted line. The auditory experts you can see in green. And the auditory ex experts are just the opposite. They're great at the auditory version of the task where they hear the clicks and their chance at vision. And this turned out to be a really useful component of our experimental design. Because if you think about the vision experts versus the auditory experts doing, say, a visual task, they're both getting the same stimulus, they're both making the same response, but they differ in how they interpret that incoming signal. So for the vision experts, they know what it means. They know that when you get a visual stimulus on the right, you need to plan a lick movement accordingly. But if they're an auditory expert and they get a visual stimulus, they basically make a sensory motor guess. They haven't figured out what the visual stimulus means, and so they make some kind of guess, and they're right half the time. So their incoming sensory stimulus and their outgoing motor response are the same, but what they do internally differs um, between those two groups. So we were open to the idea that there might be decision-making uh, activity and movement-related activity at many different places um, uh, across the dorsal cortex. And because a number of decision-making areas have been implicated in, in uh, many studies throughout the past year, especially about the past five years for mice, um, we wanted to look at neural activity really quite broadly to give ourselves the best chance of seeing where decision-making and movement-related um, activity interact. So to do this, um, we developed a, a wide-field imaging setup, and this is, was led by the postdoc Simon Musall that I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, and what we do uh, is that we have two channels. One channel, we can measure the neural activity, and I'll tell you a bit more in a moment about where that activity comes from. And then in the other channel, we can see the animal's hemodynamic response, that is the blood flow that goes between the brain, that goes uh, across the brain to fuel up all of the neurons. And we have techniques that we use for separating those two so we can get a really precise estimate of neural activity. A big advantage of this approach is that we can um, see neural activity through an intact skull. The, the skull of the mouse is really very thin, and the signals that we have are pretty bright, so we can see the neural activity all the way through the skull. We don't have to do any surgery to remove skull uh, or anything like that. So it's a, a quite non-invasive way to measure neural activity. But you might wonder, well, wait a second, how can you see neurons firing? You might know or remember from my previous talk that the way they communicate with each other is electrically. So, for example, if we have this neuron here, and it wants to send a message to a neighboring neuron over there, then the neighboring neuron will spike. And traditionally, people have recorded that electrical activity using sharp electrodes, like the one that I've schematized here. 
And this is a great approach, but it won't be really what we want if we want to measure neural activity across the entire dorsal cortex, because that would necessitate putting electrodes all over the dorsal cortex. And in terms of biological tissue, that wouldn't be a very good thing to do. It would be too many electrodes in the brain and would really damage the brain. So that technique was kind of off the table. So we decided to take advantage of a different technique, which leverages the fact that when neurons spike in the way I just described, that uh, there's an influx and outflux of calcium in and out of the neuron. And we can attach a fluorophore, something that emits light, uh, to this calcium, so that when the calcium is going in and out, that we can see the calcium. And this gives us an estimate of the, uh, the neuron's response. So to make it really simple, when a neuron fires, it turns green. So uh, if we use transgenic tools to have the calcium indicators in all of the neurons in a mouse, then what it allows us to do is this. So we take the camera that I described to you a moment ago, and at the bottom there, you can see six schematic neurons that are all quiet, they're not responding. And then when the, the area becomes engaged and the neurons start firing, then they turn green, and we can capture those photons uh, with our wide field microscope, macroscope, and we can do this across the entire brain. So this allows us to see neurons firing, uh, which is a really helpful tool when we want to look at neural activity across a really broad swath of brain. So what kind of structures can we see? I mean, you might be a little skeptical about this technique, and indeed many in the field work, because it's kind of a a new technique that uh, we and only a few other labs are using. Well, we have one kind of proof of principle test um, that kind of tells us uh, that this technique is measuring a reasonable signal. And we use a technique called uh, a visual mapping, or Fourier analysis, where we show animals um, uh, vertical bars and horizontal bars um, that are moving. And then by looking at the moments in time that we see neural activity for different pixels, we can generate maps of visual space. And one thing um, that we were able to, uh, to recapitulate that others have observed is that each mouse has multiple maps of visual space. So in primary visual cortex, there's a map of visual space. And then in about six or seven surrounding areas, there is the same map of visual space repeated multiple times. So this was um, a technique originally developed by Michael Stryker's lab at UCSF, and it's really useful for us in demonstrating that the wide-field imaging is giving us reasonable signals. But it's also, I think, really cool to ponder. So mice are are similar to other mammals, humans and non-human primates, in that the visual world is represented multiple times in every single brain. And it's interesting to think about why that is. What computations distinguish one map of visual space from a neighboring map of visual space? Why do we have so many? The answer isn't totally known, but it does highlight that for for many mammals, including mice, um, that that have a visual system that's not quite as good as primates, but even in mice, vision matters enough that they're willing to repeat that visual world six times uh, in every, every hemisphere of every brain. So having uh, um, confirmed that we can see the maps of visual space that are expected in uh, in the visual cortex of the mouse, we're then in a position where we can measure neural activity during decision-making. So this is the same behavioral task that I showed you a moment ago that starts with the baseline period. Then when the visual stimulus comes on, you can see, uh, you'll be able to see the back of the brain, primary visual cortex, there it is, lighting up. Then there's the delay period. And finally, when the animal makes its decision, there's really quite a lot of activity um, all over the brain. 
So in this video, it's clear that multiple areas are engaged during decision-making. And the first thing we did when we got these measurements is to do a couple of what we call sanity checks. And this is a really important thing to do really in any experiment, but especially if you're using a new technique. So the first things that we do are ask, are we seeing the right thing in the right place at the right time? So um, this is an example, shows you um, just the raw fluorescent signal. These are just basically frames from the movie that you just saw a moment ago. And the first thing that we do is to consider a few areas that have response properties that are well known. Um, so uh, those include primary visual cortex. Uh, and the first thing that we ask is, do we see a difference in primary visual cortex for auditory versus visual trials? Well, we better see a difference, right? If we don't see a difference, then something's wrong with our measurement. So that's what you see down here. The white line is for visual trials, and the red line is for auditory trials. And those two gray rectangles tell you when the stimulus is on. And much to our relief, we saw a higher response on visual trials than auditory trials in primary visual cortex. Great. Sanity check. Passed. Okay, next time we look at area RS, which stands for retrosplenial cortex. It's an area that's a little bit more medial. Uh, has some visual known responses. And again, we see that auditory and visual are a little bit different, more of a visual response. Again, confirmed. In areas that are involved in movement planning, we wouldn't expect those to differ very much for auditory versus visual stimuli because the movement is always the same. And indeed, for a hind limb area and for secondary motor cortex, we found those were the same. So this, combined with the visual maps, gave us reassurance that our technique was working and we're seeing the right activity in the right place at the right time. So then we decided to make a comparison of novice versus expert subjects. And that's what you see here. So starting with V1, that's at the top. Remember, primary visual cortex. The red line uh, are the untrained subjects, and the white line are the trained subjects. And you can see they're really pretty similar. And we noticed how similar they were, and we thought, huh, well, they're, they're doing something kind of different. Remember, their behavior was very different, but the neural responses seem pretty, pretty similar. Uh, okay, well, let's look at retrosplenial cortex. Maybe, you know, that's where we'll see a difference between novice and expert decision makers. But again, we thought, what? <laughs> the activity is really similar here, too. And everywhere we looked, it seemed like the novice and expert decision makers, even though their behavior was really different, their neural activity was surprisingly similar. So this led us to say, whoa, well, if decision-making signals aren't driving this neural activity, because remember, the decision-making is quite different in the two groups, what is driving the neural activity? We didn't know. So we decided we needed to work a little harder to connect the neural activity to the behavior. And the way that we did this was to build a linear model. And the goal of the model is this. So you can imagine a particular pixel that we record. This is just one spot in the brain. But on trial one, the fluorescent signal in that pixel might go up and down a bit, look something like this. Here might be two other trials, so same part of the brain, but two different trials, fluorescent signals kind of going up and down. And our goal with our model is that we wanted to model the trial-by-trial trial fluorescence signal using all of the behavioral parameters we have at our disposal. So we say we want to say, what is it that's driving these fluctuations? Is it the decision? Is it fidgeting movements? Is it, is it pupil dilation? What is it? And we were fortunate to have a lot of behavioral parameters at our disposal. So what we did is we took to all the possible events that might modulate neurons. We didn't know which ones mattered. We started with things like the moment that the stimulus came on. We call those post-events. Uh, Peri-events, these are things like licking movements. Uh, trial events that have to do with decision-making, like whether the past or current trial is a success or failure. 
And then finally, a whole lot of analog parameters as well. And these are things like the animal's pupil diameter, which fluctuates uh, over the course of the trial, uh, and also whisking movements and a number of other movements as well. And I should say that we were partly inspired um, by work from Marius Pachitariu and Carson Stringer that had previously developed from electrical recordings in V1, not during decision-making, but nonetheless very relevant, that those neurons cared a lot about facial movements. And so we thought, well, we'll just we'll throw those into the model uh, as well and, and, and see what comes out. So this is now the whole model. Uh, and for those of you who are aficionados, we had to, of course, think really deeply about how to fit this model because we have many, 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 many parameters. We want to pre- prevent overfitting. Um, but there are good mathematical techniques to do that um, that we leveraged. And at the end of the day, we put these all together in a design matrix. And then we fit the model, which just means we assign a weight to each of these variables, just saying how much does this variable matter for fitting the neural response. And I'm going to show you now the, uh, the model's estimate of what the fluorescent signal should do on every trial by overlaying in red the model prediction to the actual data in white. So you can see that the model is pretty good. So we were able to capture a lot of the trial-by-trial fluctuations in fluorescence, about 42% of those fluctuations, um, which was quite encouraging. So this tells us that the model's working. And now we get to ask the really interesting question, which is why is the model working? What are the parameters that are really important for making this model so good at predicting um, what the neural activity is going to do? So we separated the variables into two groups. And one of them I'm going to describe now as task-related variables. And these are things like the animal's choice, success or failure of the previous trial, uh, presence of an auditory or visual stimulus, uh, things like this. And we found that, you know, as we expected, these mattered for the model. If you, they, they had weights that were non-zero, that was, that was good. But surprisingly, when we then looked at a different class of variable, movement-related variables, we found that they, they accounted for a lot more of the variance. The movements of the nose, for example, which we hadn't really expected. Um, uh, these, these two parameters called video and video ME, which stands for video motion energy. These are just all of the remaining pixels in the video um, that, that we weren't expecting to matter at all. Um, turned out to be really very important for explaining the fluorescent signal. But at this point, uh, you should be skeptical. So this is our, uh, what I call skeptic's corner. And a skeptic would say, oh, come on. Uh, this isn't really the right way to do this analysis because a lot of the variables that you have here are related to each other. For example, the animal's choice, whether it goes right or left, is intimately tied to the animal's licking because it uses the licking to report the choice. And this is, of course, a very valid criticism. So to address this, we went back to the model and we kicked the parameters out of the model one by one and looked at how much worse the model did as a result. And this is a much more conservative way of assessing how much each of these behavioral features matters for the brain. So for example, I'll be really concrete here. Let's suppose we kick out uh, the right visual stimulus. Then we're going to ask how how much worse does the model do? Or another way of, of putting it, how much does the model suffer? And where does the model suffer? So here's a way to visualize this. So now the colors here tell you how much the model's ability uh, to fit the data, how well it worked, how much worse that got when we kicked out the parameter corresponding to the right visual stimulus. Well, good. We found out when we kicked out the right visual stimulus from the model, we could no longer predict the neural activity in left V1. And remember that activity, that the visual signals from the right go to the opposite side of the brain. They, they cross uh, at the brain. 
So this, this tells us that when we eliminate that model, we can no longer fit the data as well in primary visual cortex, which is exactly what we would expect. And similarly, when we kick the right handle grab out of the model, we're no longer able to predict uh, uh, activity in the part of the brain that corresponds um, to the, um, the paw motor cortex. So this tells us that our more conservative approach is doing what it's supposed to do. And we were then able to reanalyze the data and say, well, how much, of each of, how much do each of these parameters matter when we use a much more conservative method? And we found that a lot of them in the task, um, you can see here, well, you can't actually see. These dark green bars tell you how much these parameters matter. They're almost invisible because when we kicked out most of the decision-making parameters, we could still fit the model really well. And that's because what really mattered for the neural activity was the movement model. So the dark green bars corresponding to the movement parameters are still much larger, especially compared to the task telling us that we really need to include those in our model if we want to understand the neural activity, but not so much um, the task parameters. I have uh, movies here that show you how much each model matters at each location and space in the brain and also each moment in time. So the full model means the model including all of the parameters. The movement model is the one including all of the movements in the plot I just showed you before. And the one uh, labeled task, these are all the decision-related parameters. So when you see that one of the, the, the uh, values on these plots are yellow, that means that that particular um, parameter really mattered for the model, and blue means that it mattered less. So you can already see that at the beginning of the trial, the task parameters don't really matter very much at all. And let's see what happens over time. So movement model really matters. Again, really the movement model. Okay, stimulus comes on. You can see the task model starts to matter. We need to... to have the uh, task model to understand visual cortex responses. So really throughout the entire trial, the main things that we needed to explain the neural activity really had to do with the movements that the animal was making and much less so the decision-making parameters um, uh, that, that we had built into the behavior. And just to be really concrete about what I mean, think about um, licking, which is a movement variable, versus the animal's choice, which is a task variable. So the choice, um, the choice parameter um, is a, a binary variable, which can be one at any moment in the trial. So it can influence the neural activity at any moment in the trial. And so that means if there's any particular moment where a choice is made, that parameter will be a really good one to have. But with licking, what actually happens is the animal makes a few kind of idiosyncratic licking movements at the end of the trial. And if, for example, there's a fluorescent spike every time the animal makes a licking movement, then the licking parameter is what captures the neural activity and not the choice parameter. And that's, it's, it's uh, dissociations like that which allowed us um, to uncover that it was really the movements that mattered much more than the abstract decision-related quantities that we had included in the model as well. Uh, okay, so I've told you so far that movement-related variables are really the most important for understanding neural activity. And there are really two kinds of, uh, of movement-related activity. Some of them are instructed movements, like handles and licks. And remember, early in the talk, we wondered whether instructed movements were the only ones that mattered. But there are many uninstructed movements at all. We don't tell the animal to dilate its pupil. We don't tell it to move its hind paw or move its nose. But you can see that many of these uninstructed movements um, were really important for fitting the neural activity. 
and there's kind of a lesson here, I think, that we really learned, which is that those movements aren't important to us, right? We care about the licking and the handle grab because those are what we built into the experimental design. But apparently these other movements are important to the animal because it makes a lot of those movements. And apparently they're a high priority for the brain because we really need to know what, for example, the nose is doing if we want to understand uh, the neural activity. Um, so these spontaneous movements really were quite important. Um, just to summarize uh, uh, across all of the different movements, um, we've grouped them into the task variables, those are the decision-related ones, and then instructed versus uh, spontaneous um, spontaneous movements. And you can see that the spontaneous movements, the green bar, both dark and green bar, are larger than the instructed movements. So those spontaneous movements were even more important than the ones that we had built into the decision-making task. Um, so. What does this mean for understanding average neural activity? One thing we often do as scientists is that we average together the responses of many repetitions of the same trial. And you might, uh, you might feel reassured thinking that, that once you've averaged responses together, that a lot of these spontaneous movements that I'm talking about won't really matter anymore. And the extent to, that's true, to which that's true kind of depended a bit on the area under, under study. So here at the top, this is uh, the fluorescence response and also the model fit to average data from primary visual cortex, V1. And there are two lines there, but you can't really see that there are two lines because the model fits the data really well. So now I'm going to break up the model into just the task variables, the decision-making ones. And you can see that we mostly fit the fluorescence activity pretty well, except at the beginning of the trial, there's a little bump that we couldn't really fit with the task model. When we included instructed movements, we did better at fitting that bump because it turned out that that bump was related to the animal grabbing the handle. And this was surprising because this is in primary visual cortex where we wouldn't think a handle grab would matter so much, but it did matter. And then when we looked at the um, spontaneous movements, again, we found we were able to um, understand the bump a little bit better uh, when we included those spontaneous movements. So to summarize, in primary visual cortex, the decision-making parameters in the task category are really pretty important, and we only need the movement model for certain kinds of uh, fluctuations in activity. Here in secondary motor cortex, it's kind of a different story. Here, the task variables were not very helpful in understanding the neural activity at all. The instructed movements were definitely more helpful, and the spontaneous movements were really critical. Uh, we really needed um, all three of these, mo these model components together to be able to predict what the neurons were going to do. So uh, as a result of this analysis so far, we developed what we call a task modulation index, which tells us how much particular brain areas are modulated by these task variables. And part of the reason we did this is that I'm hoping people might be skeptical for a second reason. So back to skeptics corner again. A skeptic here would say, okay, it's clear that neural activity is, is dominated by movements when you measure activity using wide field imaging. But what is wide field imaging really measuring? It's a new technique. Who knows? What do you think the single neurons are doing? That's what we've been measuring in the field of neuroscience for decades. And that's, of course, a valid concern because wide field imaging is pooling signals from probably a lot of um, different kinds of neural activity. So to address this point, we picked an area called ALM, anterior lateral motor cortex, which is indicated um, by the uh, dotted white line at the front of the brain. And we decided to zoom in there with our two-photon microscope to see whether the dominance of movement-related activity was evident when we looked at single neurons, the more traditional approach as well. So that's ALM there. 
Uh, and this shows you um, where we imaged. <clears throat> it's a, an area ALM is known um, to be active during decision making, and especially when an animal is experiencing a delay waiting to execute a motor response to report a decision. There's been a lot of work on this area from uh, Carl Svoboda's lab as well as a number of others. So we imaged there and used an automated segmentation method to identify where all the individual neurons are. And then the uh, image with the yellow box around it, each one of those little colored dots uh, is a single neuron. So you can see we can measure the activity from um, lots of neurons at the same time. And now we're measuring them one at a time. So it's the zoom-in view as opposed to the bird's-eye view I told you about previously. We can see what these neurons do uh, at every moment in time during the decision-making uh, behavior. And without going into too much detail, the measured responses that we observed in these neurons was very similar to the responses that people had um, reported previously. So this confirms that we're recording neural activity in an area um, with, with known response properties and that we see what others see. Uh, so many neurons have clear task tuning. So now we're able to do exactly the same approach I told you before. We take the same model, same movement parameters, behavior parameters, except instead of trying to model the trial-by-trial trial fluctuations in fluorescence activity of pixels, we do it for individual neurons. But other than that, the math is all the same, and we can ask all the same questions about whether movement-related activity dominates during decision-making. And this is the outcome of that analysis. You can see that for the two-photon single neuron analysis, we see really a very similar picture from what we saw at the wide field, which is, again, movements really dominate neural activity. Uh, and here's just a couple of single-cell examples. And I like these because, for us, they tell us that our intuitions about what kind of computations are reflected in neurons can be kind of misleading. So this first cell, it's a cell in area ALM, and its fluorescence response is shown in white. And the um, predicted response from the movement model and task model are shown in green. And this is a neuron that's pretty similar to, um, or has a message similar to the message that I've been telling you throughout, which is that the movement model is way better. And that's even true uh, when you look at the response within those um, gray rectangles, which is the time that the animal is making its decision. There's a really interesting time-varying increase during that period, which we might have thought was related to a decision-making parameter. But in fact, really, it just has to do with the movements that the animal's making. This cell is the opposite story. So for this cell, again, the real response is in gray, and the model predictions are in blue and green. For this cell, the movement model is really terrible, uh, and the task model is much better. And if I had seen this neuron without having done uh, this analysis, I would have thought, oh, yeah, that's a movement neuron. It's building up right before the time of the movement. But that really turned out not to be true. And I think one lesson that we've learned, having analyzed the data in this way, is that Sometimes the intuitions we have about what kinds of computations are being reflected in neural activity just really aren't right. And we need to um, test the hypothesis to explicitly and distinguish movement-related activity from other kinds of cognitive functions um, like decision-making. Um, so I started off uh, by asking the questions about is this activity, um, about movement-related activity during decision-making. And you might remember that we had three questions. So the first question is, is it quite localized to just a few areas or is it very widespread? And yes, it's very widespread. We saw movement-related activity all across the dorsal cortex, even in primary visual cortex. Uh, and for anyone who's a skeptic, the dominance of movement in visual cortex has also been observed uh, by, by other labs as well, Marius Pachitario and Carson Stringer specifically. Secondly, um, is the, the uh, activity only driven by instructed movements, the ones that we taught the animal to do, like grabbing the handle? 
both instructed and spontaneous movements matter. So the instructed ones matter for us, but apparently for the animal, spontaneous movements also matter, and they're clearly a priority for the brain. Task-aligned or task-independent, again, both really matter. So some of the movements are aligned to events in the trial, and other ones happen at idiosyncratic moments in the trial and are really more like fidgets, perhaps of the sort that we see humans making uh, a lot as well. So you might wonder at this point, well, what's really going on? So this analysis demonstrates that movement-related activity really dominates the cortex, even during decision-making. But we know that can't be the whole story, um, because uh, I showed you at the beginning that the behavior of novices and experts are really different. So if that's true, there must be places in the brain or ways of measuring neural activity that uncovers a difference between novice decision-makers or, or guessers and true decision-makers. And we are still trying to uncover that. We think if we have use a different kind of analysis in area ALM, that we do see a signature of true decision-making. But the main message that I hope you'll remember is that this needs to be very carefully teased apart from uh, signals that are related to the animal's movements. The decision-making signals are there, but they're hard to see, and they interact very intimately with signals related um, to, uh, to movements. Um, so these are the people in my lab uh, who, who are, are part of a team that's worked together um, to do this work. Uh, we uh, collaborate a lot within our group and also with groups outside. And we're also really grateful um, to our funders for uh, providing the resources that make it possible for us to do that work. So thank you very much.